0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, on our one-year anniversary, we talk about a real jailbird. Guards in B.C. have nabbed a pigeon being used to fly drugs in a little backpack into a prison yard. We find out exactly how you train one to do that. Crime historian Eve Lazarus, author of Cold Case B.C., joins us for our segment called A Little More True Crime talk about some of the murder and missing persons cases featured in her new book learn about how a mister big sting nabbed the killer of a 12-year-old merit girl decades after her death and how genetic genealogy cracked a very cold case and led police to the man responsible for the murders of a young victoria couple in washington state in 1987 But first, North American leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, are in Mexico City this week for the Three Amigos Summit. We hear from the President and CEO of the Canadian Business Council, who is there, about why it's time for more cooperation and less trade conflict
1: between the three neighboring countries.
0: first up, let's head to Mexico City, where the leaders of Canada, the U.S. and Mexico gathered for the North American Leaders Summit, also known, of course, as the Three Amigos. Lots to talk about, including fighting cartels and crime, fentanyl, immigration. But the main focus was economic, a little more than three years since NAFTA was scrapped by then-President Trump to be replaced by a new agreement, uh, whose acronym I can never remember, but is USMCA.
2: People remember what happened just a few years ago when the certainty of this partnership was in question. Investors, businesses, workers, and citizens all worried about what would happen. When free trade is at risk, that isn't good for competition in the global market. Thankfully, the belief in free and fair trade won the day.
0: The Prime Minister there uh, speaking in Mexico City today. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau did sit down for a one-on-one meeting with President Biden. Details of exactly what they talked about were kept private. Uh, There were some irritants going into this. Canada and the U.S. upset with uh, President López Obrador of Mexico for violating the Free Trade Pact by favoring Mexico's state-owned utility over power plants built by foreign and private investors. Some protectionism on the Mexican side there. Um, Trudeau and Lopez Obrador are concerned about Biden's efforts to boost domestic manufacturing, so-called America First stuff. Um, and today, Trudeau did speak about emphasizing free trade between the U.S. and Canada, between the three partners, really. You know, 80% of our exports, nearly 80% of our exports go to the U.S. Here is the Prime Minister again.
2: Yes, we're at a time of challenges and strife, but you're right, there's a lot of reasons to be
0: optimistic, especially uh, for those of us in our countries. But it's going to take a lot of work, something that neither you nor I nor mostly our citizens have ever been afraid of. Uh, rolling up our
2: sleeves and building a better future in those better communities is absolutely essential.
0: The Prime Minister... Uh... Sitting with Joe Biden today, we do know they worked out uh, a few things, a temporary fix to that fight over the Nexus trusted traveler system. And President Biden will indeed make his first trip to Canada as president in March. Well, joining me now with more on this from Calgary tonight is Goldie Hyder. He's president and CEO of the Canadian Business Council. He was or is just back from Mexico City. Welcome home or welcome back.
1: Yeah, literally just back. Good to be with you again, Ben. Happy New Year to you.
0: Yes, and you. Um, What was it like? I mean, the atmosphere, it's been a while since we've had one of these in person. Uh, What was it like to be all gathered there? And I gather that business leaders, including yourselves, were all down there taking part in this for perhaps the first time in this way.
1: Well, I think that's the real story is where we find ourselves is governments who normally meet with each other and, you know, kind of discuss what it is that they need to do. I think uh, appreciated the fact that they had an opportunity to actually sit down with business leaders from all three countries because when all is said and done and they acknowledge this at the gatherings that we had um, it's the business community that executes it's, the, it's they're the ones who create the jobs they're the ones who bring in the business they 're the ones who hire people to you know to to help and execute the agreements that these governments are making so it was really nice to see um, I can tell you that the business leaders I spoke with in all three countries. Felt that there was goodwill established here. There's a spirit of partnership, a spirit of collaboration, and a recognition, just as we saw in COVID, Ben. I always come back to COVID as an example of where I don't think the public cared who did what. They just wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay, that they had a job, that they were going to be taken care of. Governments did their part, but business community did a lot during that as well. And when we find ourselves in geopolitical risks that's going on out there, I think the people have the same attitude. They're worried about their own issues. They expect business and government and others to do what they need to do, work together, play nice, and get the results for the people.
0: I know you went into this uh, asking, you even wrote a letter to this effect, uh, asking for a real Spirit of cooperation between our three mm-hmm. countries. You called protectionism uh, in another interview politically logical, but practically illogical, uh, to quote mm-hmm. Spock. But you're right. I mean, it's, this is a time when we would think that this is um, time for Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. to, to join forces. It's, it's competitive out there, and we are natural partners.
1: Yeah, that's one of the main messages. I had the opportunity when the prime minister was there to kind of kick off the, the response from the business communities. And the main message that all three of our, our business associations from our respective countries was simply this. Um, the world is changing and it's changing very fast. And uh, you can't dictate how that happens. It's already happening. If you look at the European Union, you know, despite what everybody thinks about Europe, it's held together. It's a strong block of countries where critical mass is there. You look at what's taking place in the Indo-Pacific and in Asia. I mean, we have trade agreements, one of the largest, the largest trade agreement called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That's 30 percent of the global GDP, 30 percent, you know, of of, uh, a population. And guess what? It doesn't just include democracies. It's got China. It's got other countries that are involved. Australia is there as a democracy. And so you're seeing that even where there's ideological differences, countries are coming together because there's strength in numbers. But for whatever reason, Ben, and I don't know what the reason is, North America has always acted as what I call me, myself, and I. And it's either take care of yourselves or it's just have a good relationship with America. What we've been able to say to the business, or to the governments is, The new world in which we find ourselves, if we don't beef up, if you will, if we don't have critical mass, we're not going to be able to compete with those blocks. And so we really advocated for what we call the North American you know, team, a North American jersey, if you will. Yes, we're going to have competition amongst ourselves. We have competition inside Canada. There's nothing wrong with competition. In fact, we want to see more competition because competition is good for the consumer. But let North America realize that we're going to be stronger if we fight this fight together than if we fight inside each other's tent here because the the, the battle is not from inside. It's for the rest of the world. And I think from what I saw governments have realized, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Secretary Blinken directly, and he was saying, look, you know, this is, this is what we're seeing. You know, the pace of change, the rate of change is happening so fast. He said it's a growing, you know, it's a growth industry, you know, change. We've change got to figure grow- out how to manage that. We've got to figure out how to manage that. And, and I think this is what Canadians, you know, as I said, they're not thinking about this at their dinner tables. They're expecting us to do it for them. Yeah, but I guess if
0: if we look back, you know, memories of 2019 are still pretty vivid, you know, about an an unpredictable America is I think part of what's been mm-hmm. the problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, America, I mean, within our unlike say the European Union where the France and Germany sort of counterbalance each other to some extent. Um, you know, this is this is really one big one big player in the yard and both of us sort of Uh, very important, but still, um, do you still get the sense that that's passed? I mean, with what's happened with, you know, with the the House of Representatives now, Kevin Mm -hmm, McCarthy mm -hmm. and so forth, I mean, we're all looking over our shoulder a little bit.
1: Well, let me say two things about that. First of all, we put a lot of emphasis on populism and we immediately think, right, truth is populism exists at both ends of the spectrum. And we've got to be very careful because that illogic that I spoke about exists on both sides. Right. Uh, it is illogical to be talking about no trade agreements and protectionism and you know tariffs and all of those things that the right has done at times. It's equally illogical to believe that government can do everything for society and the deficits and debt don't matter. And, you know, just uh, everybody, you know, we're going to take care of you. The truth of the matter is, and I think most people in all of North America, certainly in North America, I would say, and for sure in Canada, or what my father likes to say, are people of the radical middle. We're not that hard left, and we're not that hard right. We're centrist, we're moderate, we believe in social policy, but we also believe in good fiscal policy, right? We kind of want the country to be run yeah. in a way in which we run our lives, right? The Goldilocks the the theory, yeah, the
0: Goldilocks yeah, theory, up. right? It's just
1: right. The second yeah. point, which is really goes to the core of your question, is the fact that trade has become a dirty word. And there's a history we can go over as to how that's happened. But the bottom line is, it doesn't make it so. Just because somebody is trying to demonize trade, the reality is trade is what helps create the jobs. Trade is what helps, you know, when your customer goes and buys something and says, man, I like buying my phone at, you know, $100 and not $500, that's trade making that possible. So we've got to figure out where do we add value in the supply chain around the world? And the answer, let me start with where I'm sitting right now in Alberta, is energy. A huge part of our GDP is energy. But you know what? Uh, we've got to build able trade enabling infrastructure to get that product to market. Wherever I've traveled, they've said, it's a shame you can't get us more. It's a shame yep. you can't get us LNG. You saw what we did to the Germans. You and I have spoken about that before. This is, mm-hmm. this is an area where our government and, and has to do better. And we've got to do better working with them to say, let's figure out how to leverage the fact that our energy industry has growth for the next 20 to 30 years. That will subsidize the innovation necessary to address the emissions reductions and the climate change, right? We can get countries off coal, not, not just other coal and yet we're not able to get the product to market. So we've got to address that issue here, but we've also got the critical minerals. But you know where they are, Ben? They're in the ground. We've got to have an infrastructure, sorry, a regulatory process that encourages capital to form and, and has confidence that whether governments come and whether governments change, that the project stays, the project can go ahead, the jobs that are available to be created in, northern, in remote communities in Northern Ontario and other places is phenomenal growth to be had but not if we don't have the policy framework that attracts the capital. And right now, we don't. There's too much uncertainty, and that's why you're not seeing any of these projects. Some of the companies that were in our delegation are investing in Mexico. The same companies that could be investing in Canada are investing in Mexico. The
0: Nexus, I know know this isn't really uh, your lane, but the Nexus Agreement (laughs) seemed to be something that was important to people who travel a lot, specifically business people. Uh, It looks like they finally came up with a workaround. That seems to be good news. It was strange how long uh, this took them to figure
1: out. Yeah, it's an example of what, what I was trying to stress at the meeting, that we have too many irritants that keep us distracted and, and on the ground floor, and we've got much bigger issues here. Great news that they got it resolved. It is in our lane because, as you said, businesses are very affected by this. Uh, we had written to the U.S. ambassador. I'd worked very closely with the Canadian ambassador and saw her just yesterday and uh, was delighted that we were able to get this. Uh, they were able to get this across the uh, The finish line, and you'd be surprised, by the way, there are a lot of Canadians who get their Nexus Pass just to be able to use it, uh, including many families. So I think they'll be relieved, and I I can tell you personally, um, my renewal already showed up without an interview or anything, so it's clearly working.
0: Good, <laughs> good. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed the head, the head, the head of. I mean, the irritants remain, right? I mean, there are yeah, always yeah, things yeah. that will make sense politically. I noticed the head of TC Energy was down there with you. I was thinking back yes. to Keystone XL. Um, mm-hmm. Where do where do you see both where, coming up this year? And with Mm -hmm. President Biden coming to Canada for the first time as president, which is always good. um, Where do you see the challenges? Where do you see the irritants this year? And also, what are the things that, that you think will pleasantly surprise us this year in this relationship, given what you've just seen?
1: Yeah. So we look. We stress the the importance of just recognizing that trade agreements and relationships between countries are really like a marriage. There are going to be things you're going to argue about that you're going to disagree over. But you don't get a divorce every time you have an argument and you disagree about something. You acknowledge it. You hear the other person out. You you know. In this case, we have a me- we have a dispute mechanism, a resolution mechanism, which we should honor. Uh, you can you can go to a, a body. You can have a you can have an you know make your case, and somebody says this is what the outcome is. What we said to them is. Honor the the, rule, the rules that are in place. If you lose, you lose. You honor the agreement, and we keep going forward. Otherwise, while the rest of the world's moving on and thinking big and acting with ambition and and urgency, we're going to be here playing small ball, running around talking about issues that, as you rightly note, Ben, are largely political. So they may or may not get resolved because of the politics. We need to think big picture, and that's the main push that we were able to to, to drive home there. And when you mention challenges, the big challenge, actually. Um, is what's called the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. I'm sure listeners are, are not thinking, what's that? Um, at the end of the day, what it really is, is America has decided to go big, and I mean big, on in what, what's called industrial policy, on how they're going to really uh, you know, become a place, a magnet for capital, a magnet for talent, where they're going to go after the critical minerals infrastructure, they're going to go after the semiconductor market and the chips, and they're going to become less reliant on, on, on unreliable uh, you know, uh, countries in their mind, and what they've done is effectively made everybody else, France, Japan, Korea, Canada, and others are saying, hang on a minute here. I thought we were going to like French shore and near shore. Where's that? Yeah. Where's that? And so we've got go to go to them and thing. say, we realize you're the G1 and we realize that you can print money because you're the global currency. But m- our message, and I said this to many of the American administration people that I met with, is a strong America comes from a strong North America. You benefiting at the expense of Canada and Mexico is not good for you. Never mind, not good for North America. If you have problems in Mexico, you have issues in Canada, you're in the neighborhood. It's going to spill over. So let's work together. Let's figure out how we can build those supply chains and, and the integrity of those supply chains. Let's not be protectionist. Let's not be territorial. Let's not think small. Let's think big about how North America can compete. And as I said, at least expressions and the follow-up, there was a sense of optimism. And the prime minister, I thought, did a superb job in really making the case for trade because, as you know, in the United States, it's a dirty word. No one talks about trade. And they have a new fr- what, a new it, word called frameworks, whatever that is,
0: right? It's remarkable. We, you know, I mean, it, the ultimate trading nation has stopped talking yes, about trade. It is so yes, bizarre.
1: Exactly. And so I, I think it's really important that, in, in this case, obviously, you have a very different government in, in Mexico. It was good to see the prime minister make the case uh, for the importance of that. But at the same time, what we're also saying is it, 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 it is important that we are a magnet for capital, that we do build the infrastructure, right, that we are going to be working with leveraging our growth in our, in our sectors, which does include the oil and gas sector. It's, it's, it's just happening. If you don't want it to happen here, somebody else somewhere in the world is doing it. I mean, where did the United States go for their oil when they were having their crisis? They went to Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and Iran. The same country that shut down Keystone Pipeline went to those countries. And we've got to call them out on it. We've got to say to them, we've got it. And we can get it to responsibly lower emissions. I mean, our business community here, I'm proud to say, is making significant. I'm talking hundreds of billions of dollars of plans of investment in things like carbon capture, utilization, and storage to get emissions right out of the sky. And remember one thing about carbon. There's no market for it. You're not going to go and put it in a gas station and sell oh, it to go- somebody or a carbon station. It's just cost. Goldie, we're,
0: right? we're getting played out. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Welcome back.
1: Good to be with you. We'll talk again, I'm sure, Ben. All the best.
0: Well, every once in a while, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. It really is. So you've heard of a jailbird, right? Common, Common phrase. This story puts an entirely different set of wings on that term. When I saw it for the first time last week, you know, we knew we had to find out more about it because we kept talking about it. Right before the new year, prison guards at the Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, B.C., spotted a pigeon inside the maximum, medium, and minimum security potential penitentiary's walls. Um, so what, you say? Right, a pigeon. You see them everywhere. Well, this pigeon happened to have a little backpack strapped to it. And you could say this was not a social call. John Randall, Pacific Regional President of the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, says the bird was apprehended at Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, 80 kilometres east of Vancouver. He says the backpack contained crystal methamphetamine. Randall says he was told by officers that the bird was spotted with its unusual cargo on December 29th in a yard at the facility and they set up a trap to catch it. Randall says in recent years, prison officers have been on the lookout for drones carrying drugs and other contraband, but it's the first time in his 13 years as a corrections officer he's heard of a live bird being used. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Yeah, I mean, this isn't unheard of. It's It's been done. It's happened. I mean, there are headlines. If you Google it, you'll see it's happened before. But wow, you know, yeah, they're on the lookouts for drones and other things, but Yeah, this pigeon just happened to fly right in there with its little backpack on with this uh, little supply of methamphetamine. What a strange story. I mean, it's, you know, when it comes to smuggling contraband into prison, I suppose uh, everything goes, but still. So how would one go about training a pigeon to act as a mule, so to speak? We thought we'd find out. We thought we'd find out what the possibilities were here from someone who knows the birds. And uh, Jeevo Hasco is that person. He's director of the Vancouver Poultry and Fancy Pigeon Association and joins us now um, from Maple Ridge. Thank you so much for your time tonight. This is this is quite the story. You must have. I know you've been asked about it already, but what did you think when you first saw it?
3: Uh, I, I, I found it uh, astonishing that it happened in our uh, in British Columbia and Canada. I have heard of it before, but it was. Uh, it's an amusing story, I guess we should say.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, there's been some stories about this already, including, you know, one from back in the 30s when this was done. I was reading another one uh, from Iran where they were they were using pigeons and like a whole flock of them to, to bring drugs in from Afghanistan. Um, but in this case, how would you go about
3: doing this? So, so I have to tell you that it, it does happen, like you just said, and um, more so over borders less likely in a prison, but um, we could play that advocate game and say, um, if, if, if one wanted to train birds inside the prison, get the bird out, the bird only knows. that this, Our beautiful pigeons have a homing instinct, and they know to come home. And so if the pigeon yard was its home, and it was um, taken outside and put a backpack on, released, mm-hmm. It would come back to its uh, its rightful home, which would be the prison.
0: Right. Could so 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 in that case, you're right. As homing pigeons, the, the, the home would have to be where it wound up, right? You couldn't train it to fly into the prison and come back. In other words, or it would be more difficult.
3: No, like so, the um, all pigeons uh, have a homing instinct, and uh, it's been uh, you know televised and and studied over the years. Um, but it has to be uh coming back to its home it can't go somewhere else <laughs> put a backpack on and and uh come back
0: right so in this case i mean what are your what are your knowing the birds the way you do what would you be your best guess as to how this this particular pigeon ended up with this particular backpack in in the prison yard I mean it made it inside the prison walls
3: yeah, so my best guess as you know as as sad as um Beautiful, our beautiful birds have like gone into this kind of realm. But the the saddest part about the story is is most likely the uh, the pigeon was um, a carrier mule, and um, they 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 just grabbed probably an ordinary pigeon rather than than finding a um, a pigeon from a location where it was bred. Um, it probably was put a backpack on or a little little uh, pack on and thrown over the fence you know overnight or whenever it was and uh maybe hoping that the guards didn't notice that there was a pigeon walking around um most likely the the wings were the the fit the feathers for flights were were tied up so that the bird cannot fly as as high and um and that's how the guards caught it because otherwise the guards wouldn't have caught that bird if uh, all the flight feathers were ready to go it's very difficult to catch a pigeon let alone just one pigeon in a single area yeah
0: they move pretty fast i mean i mean that's i guess i was just curious because we know they can be trained right i mean clearly they've been trained over centuries people have used homing pigeons for different uh for different things um and in this case it just struck me as being well how did how would you how would you why would you and how would you put a backpack on a pigeon and then have it end up in a prison yard and i guess you're right the probably the most logical explanation is they didn't train it at all they just Pick a pigeon, put a backpack on, and threw it over the threw it over the prison walls, and hope for the best.
3: That that's right. Like we can, you can't, you could can do that with a pigeon more so than uh, than any other one. Pigeons, everyone has pigeons. Uh, you could, it's easy to get pigeons uh, locally or anywhere else, and and uh, more likely thinking that the guards wouldn't notice. But uh, that's most likely. You know, the 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 long story would be, of course, training it and releasing it and but when the even you know i've heard stories where uh it's over the border where they've attached a gps to it and it has gone back and that's how they've tracked who was um who the shipment was meant for but uh in this case yeah i guarantee even if the uh the guards released it with a tracker on it most likely that pigeon wouldn't uh wouldn't go back to wherever it's from
0: right i mean the the um a news outlet here in telling this story brought back up this story from the 1930s when this gentleman had sold um had sold some homing pigeons to a buyer in mexico and then they flew back to his home in texas with two capsules of cocaine in them right this is 1930 like this goes back a long way um but they are remarkable creatures i mean aside from this whole incident in abbotsford they are homing pigeons are remarkable creatures you know all about them of course you have lots of pigeons on or on your property maple ridge do you not
3: yeah, so I, I have fancy pigeons. Um there are over three hundred pigeon breeds and the one that they caught was uh a, most likely a regular homing pigeon or a racing pigeon. But um we're talking about pigeons that could fly are faster or quicker than than a Tesla or Formula One and and that could fly like um more than a thousand kilometers at a speeds of hundred and fifty kilometers an hour, like like yeah. um birds like our pigeons have saved lives in, in in world war like like we're talking about this beautiful bird that is now being used for for smuggling you know drugs into a, a prison that's the sad part of the story and um that yeah. what's what's i think what we're missing a little bit here and and uh you know i have kids but um what we're missing part as well is if that pigeon ended up somewhere else um with you know a pigeon walking around and some kids grabbed it or something like that, that, that no one has talked about. Maybe this pigeon was thrown quickly, hastily as they're going by, throw the pigeon over the fence. But what if that pigeon didn't go over the fence and just stayed on the other side and some kid grabbed that? Like it's a, it's a sad story when you start thinking about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's highly, I mean, clearly the novelty of it aside, it's, you know, it's highly irresponsible. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. It's uh, you know, I'm glad they caught it. Obviously you wonder how many other times they've done this um how would you put a backpack on a pigeon i mean you 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 deal with them i know that the stories that i was reading um the one out of iran they actually had little boxes on their on their on their you know on their feet essentially which would make sense but i can't i can't picture a, a backpack at all
3: yeah so they put i've seen many most most um the ones that have small um like share me the one that save lives in, in the wars. And um, they, they used to have little letters written in like like a 10 font or whatever, like 10 sentences or something like that in a little mm-hmm. on their legs. Uh, most of them were on their legs uh, because they tuck their legs in when they fly. They fly faster that way. And uh, But I've seen backpacks over the back. And, um, yeah, it's when you start getting into that, that they, smugglers are trying all this stuff just to smuggle drugs in, and because the, this beautiful creature is fast and, and uh, smart and knows how to get home, all they have to do is take this bird from wherever their home is, take it a thousand kilometers away and let it go with whatever they want and, um, and it, gets, it gets to where they, they, its home is.
0: Yeah, well, this certainly wasn't be wasn't meant to be a lesson on how to do it properly, but I'm glad you've cleared up how it could have been done. Jivo uh, Hasko, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I hope next time we talk, uh, we'll just talk about the birds. We won't talk about anything anything smuggling related.
3: Thank you so much for having
2: me.
0: Criminal crime historian Eve Lazarus's new book, "Cold Case BC," it has tons of cases in it. it is a It is a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Um, But just to provide some context, you know, they are often the forgotten victims of forgotten crimes, remembered only through the years and decades by those closest to them, perhaps the odd reporter who covered the story at the time, and often the officers that investigated them, although not always and sometimes the communities they left behind. In B.C. alone, as Eve points out, there are hundreds of unsolved murders dating back decades and many more disappearances and other unexplained events where people have seemingly vanished. Justice delayed, of course, is justice denied. Justice never delivered is no justice at all. And so Eve has made it her mission to document some of those cases, digging up old details, speaking to family members, investigators, others who knew them, friends, and so forth, about crimes that long ago went cold. Uh, She is a crime historian, uh, again, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and now Cold Case Case BC. As far as I can tell, it's 16 cases, but she can correct me, dating back as far as the 1940s and communities as far apart as Victoria in the south here on Vancouver Island to as far north as the so-called Highway of Tears, all of it in an effort to call attention to the cases and to the victims, with the hope, the faint hope sometimes, of finding some answers, and in some cases, to document how very cold cases were in fact finally solved. Let's begin on that Highway of Tears. It's an expression I'm sure you've probably heard a stretch of highways uh, 1697 and 5 in nor- the northern part of BC, where at least 18 indigenous women have been murdered or disappeared over the past half century. And Eve Lazarus, crime historian, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and the latest Cold Case BC, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year.
2: Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me.
0: It is quite the um, it's a remarkable collection of of stories simply because of the amount of research you must have had to put into it. Tell me a bit about, you know, I found there was a common theme with many of the cases and a lot of them were sort of focused on those who were left behind looking for answers with very little help, it turned out.
2: Right. Uh, it was really important for me to tell the story of the victim and, and in a sense to try to give them back their voice. And and to do that, you know, I really needed to, to talk to the families and particularly with the unsolved murders, as I'm sure you know, that police won't talk about them. At all, so you can't get any information from RCMP or or police on any of these. It doesn't matter how old. And you know, I've tried in the past filing FOIs and all sorts of things and um, been shut down that way. So it's really frustrating, particularly for families that have got decades-old cases that just aren't being worked on. And every case in cold case, uh, the, the most recent was 1993. So they're all quite a few years before DNA came out and sort of became part of the, the forensic toolkit. And without it, you know, in, in those days before DNA, evidence wasn't treated very kindly. A lot of it was lost, it was contaminated, it was thrown out. So these cases, you know, we keep hearing about so many cases being solved south of the border through genetic genealogy and, and other things um, aren't going to happen to these cases because they're just isn't any DNA there. So the only way they're really going to get solved, in my opinion, is to keep talking about them, to keep them alive in the media, on social media, and and just hope that more information could come forward and, and help to solve them.
0: One of the um, things that really stands out, you did devote three chapters of this book to cases that um, involve the so-called highway of tears, as we called including the very first victim, Gloria Moody. This is a case I didn't know much about other than the name, because obviously when they released those 18 names, uh, you looked at all of them, and that was the first one back in 1969. Tell me a bit about her case and why you chose to include her in the book.
2: Well... It- Cold Case um, BC is really divided up into three areas. It's unsolved murders, it's um, murders that were solved after a really long time. And it's missing people. And when I looked at the Highway of Tears, um, I really didn't know much about it. And I was kind of, the more I kind of looked into it, the more shocked I was. You know, this is just such an incredible national tragedy that we're starting to hear a bit more about, but. No, when I started looking into the cases, um, I'd never heard of the, the Gloria Moody. I'd, you know, seen her face as we all have in those long lists and stuff like that, but I didn't know anything about her as a person. And I thought because she was the oldest case that was unsolved of those eighteen Aparna cases, that I'd really take a, a look at her. And I'd connected with her daughter Vanessa on social media. So I was able to sort of talk to her, and now she was only four years old when her mother was killed, so she had no memory of her, but I was able to talk to her about, you know, the the police investigation or lack of it over the decades and um, until it actually became part of her partner, and I was able to find um, the inquest of her mother and and, and just sort of work there and sort of build a story around who she was and and what had happened to her and uh, what had happened over the years.
0: Yeah, she was, I gather, 24, and this was a weekend away. This was meant to be a weekend of celebration, right? That ended um, with sort of indescribable yeah. brutality.
2: Yeah. 26 year old mother of two from Bella Cooler, and um, her parents had um, said hey we're going to take you away you and your younger brother for a weekend you know to unwind and have some fun in in Williams Lake and and back then it was like a 12-hour drive apparently and they did it they stopped on the way and visited relatives and um, Gloria and her brother let loose and sort of did a bar hop and stuff like that and at some point during the night uh, they were at the ranch hotel and her brother lost sight of her and she wasn't seen again that night and they found a body the next day So, and horrifically murdered Um, it's just horrible and it's one of these worst kept secrets apparently in Williams Lake who did it uh, these three men and gradually they died two died in the 70s and and one in the 80s and um, police in the 90s went to Vanessa and her family and said well you know we know who did it, the case is resolved, they're dead now, we can't do anything about it, Um, thanks very much. And that was the first time she'd ever really been contacted by them, which I just find astounding, decades later. And then when Aparna came on the scene and and formed in 2005, um, they had a certain amount of criteria they were looking at. The the victims had to be female. The crime must have occurred near one of the, the three highways, Um, the victims were were typically engaged in, although not always, but in a high-risk activity like hitchhiking or sex work, and the killer had to be a stranger. And um, in Gloria's case, of course, she was near the highway, she was female, um, and the killer was definitely a stranger, so she was part of that criteria that they looked at. And they still hadn't solved the case, but uh, they did take a... A long, long look back at it, and it, it still it, it remains resolved but unsolved.
0: It was interesting that um you had it, by the way was the uh, was the inquiry or the investigations launched into these uh, eighteen uh, women who were associated or were murdered or disappeared around the highway of tears and Gloria moody 's name, despite the fact that the circumstances were it seemed a terribly kept secret in the town. Uh, she still wound up on that list, giving the family, as you mentioned, the family some hope that they might get an answer one day. But it feels like they had, they have all the answers they're going to get. It seems like um, one of the things that struck me reading that story, and this is true of many stories, and when it comes to the Highway of Tears, is how sort of, and I don't want to cast too many aspersions. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the police didn't seem too fussed.
2: No. No, and I I think that's happened a lot. Um, And most people will tell you it wasn't until Nicole Hoare, a white girl, uh, went went missing from Prince George in the early uh, 2000s that they really kicked this into gear. Um, You know, when you look at some of these cases, you've got the the Jack family, which is not part of these 18, and I'm always a bit confused about um, why they, you know, some Mm -hmm. cases were, were included and some weren't. Um, in the 18 cases, for example, 13 were teenagers and um, uh, age, and the ages range from 12 to, to 33. But for example, with the Jack family, which is just, I, I'd never heard of it and it, it just shocked me that I hadn't heard of this case. And in 1989, an entire family of four went missing and I think it's the first time in Canadian history that a whole family went missing and it's still missing. And yet there was virtually nothing about it. Um, There wasn't much... When they first went missing, nothing was really done. And and one problem was that um, they thought they were going to get some work at a logging camp. And we're talking that Doreen and um, her husband, Ronnie, had two kids. They were both 26 years old only, and they had two kids aged um, four and nine, I think, Russell and Ryan. And they're a fairly impoverished living in Prince George. And Ronnie was offered some work in a logging camp. And this man who approached him at the pub also said, Look, you know, and we can give your wife a job as a cook. And uh, when they weren't able to get daycare for the children, the, the guy said, Oh, you know, it's okay, we can look after them at the logging camp, as a daycare, which, you know, just didn't make any sense at all. But I, I think yeah. they were quite desperate. And um, part of the thing was they had to leave with him immediately. And they did, but Ronnie fortunately called his mother and uh, just told her what was going on and said, you know, we've got jobs, you know, this is great, we'll be away for about 10 days. But then he said something really strange. He said, if we don't come back, come look for us. So he must have had some kind of indication that it might not all have been on the up and up. My sister Monica was beautiful, sweet, kind and good at everything I ever saw her do. (laughs) Today is a fine day to celebrate her final victory. I'm happy to say that we have finally been given justice.
0: The sister of Monica Jack, who vanished at the age of 12 while riding her bike in Merritt, B.C. in May of 1978, Uh, another of the cases featured in the Highway of Tears section, of Eve Lazarus's new book, Cold Case B.C. Eve, this was quite the case as well. I'll let you finish talking about the Jack family. We have lots of time over the next uh, 40 minutes or so to talk about this. The Jack family, no relation, um, went missing the whole family. As you mentioned, the 26-year-old couple and their two kids. uh, Never heard from again, right, that family?
2: No, nothing. Not a trace of them was found. And, And one of the problems was because, you know, they'd told everyone they were going away for 10 days. No one looked for them. For that 10 days and um, when they didn't come back, at, um, the, the Ronnie's mother filed a, a report with the police. Now, I don't know how much work they actually did at that stage with them, but, you know, they're already behind. Uh, they couldn't have got a good description. They did get a description of the man that Ronnie talked to that was supposedly, you know, offering them a job, but it was a couple of weeks had gone by. Uh, they had a description of the car, but again, you know, couldn't really be sure if it was the same night. And, you know, there were a lot of problems there just getting the investigation underway. Um, but, yeah, but nothing, nothing was nothing. ever found. And and really, uh, I heard about this through uh, Doreen's younger sister, Marlene, who's just been relentless, um, keeping attention. Going for for this family and and getting the RCMP to you know keep looking at it and she's done age progression photos of the boys and you know she's I really admire what she's been doing to to keep this in the public light.
0: It's um it's interesting you mention that because I think that's another vein that exists through many of these stories is the sort of is the is the families left behind. And we just heard from Monica Jack's younger sister at the time. Uh, Monica was just 12 when she disappeared in Merritt in 1978. Um, her body wasn't found for many years. A suspect wasn't arrested for many years after that. But um, the families really have always, have never forgotten, right? And they just keep keep pushing, trying to figure out if there isn't an answer out there for them.
2: Yeah. And I found it's not just the families. I mean, it's obviously tragic for them and it goes on for decades and decades, but it's also whole communities, you know, particularly missing people cases that have searched for these people, knew these people, wanted some kind of answer. And, you know, decades go past and there's no closure. And with this case, it was particularly heart-wrenching with Monica Jack. I mean, she was She'd just 12 years old. She'd been given an early birthday present, a 10-speed bike, and she'd been given permission to ride, meet her cousin on the way and ride to Merit and do some shopping and actually buy a birthday present for Liz, whose um, birthday was the next day. And she was coming back and just on her way home, not far from her home. Her, her mother and sisters had actually passed her in the car, and she'd been abducted she was just abducted and her body wasn't found for 17 years so the family had to you know go through all that with no closure at all and and then when her body was found you know it took 40 years after she was murdered to convict her um, murderer
0: yeah i i wanted to get into how they found her murderer cuz cuz there there are some mysteries in your book of course cases that remain cold cases that may never be solved but you've also included some examples uh where by different techniques um the killer was in fact identified and caught and convicted and this is one of those cases it is a particularly odd way that they did it but they did manage uh to find their their suspect and their their guilty party at the end of it all um but i you know again it we just looking at that picture of Monica Jack it always strikes me that they don't age right so they mm. so that same face always looks back at you saying you know you, you know you move on but they never do and it, they mm. always seem to sit there saying you know someone's out there who knows what happened to me
2: yeah yeah and um, that was it's so interesting in the sense that they had Gary Handlin who was convicted of a murder in the end but they had him in their sights from really day one.
0: Eve Lazarus is our guest for the segment this month. She's talking to us about her book called Cold Case BC, which examines several uh, murders, unsolved and solved, as well as missing people, uh, cold cases across the province of BC, dating from 1993 all the way back to to the warriors, really, back to the Second World War. Uh, a couple of unsolved murders here in the Victoria area. Actually, the case we've been talking about now, though, it was a high-profile one. It was the disappearance of twelve-year-old Monica Jack in Merritt, BC, back in 1978, and the eventual uh, conviction of her killer, uh, who uh, was was in, in was in. At least in sight of police, quite early in the in the in the investigation, they had a description of the vehicle he happened to own. A similar vehicle, um, he had a record. He would be convicted of sex offenses, I believe. Uh, all of it, though, G- Gary Taylor, Taylor Hanlon wouldn't be arrested for decades. Uh, Eve, what happened? He simply got away with it.
2: Yeah, and it was the second one. He was also uh, originally indicted for uh, Catherine Mary Herbert's murder in Abbotsford. Uh, She was an 11-year-old girl in 1975, and he had a connection to the family for that, but they couldn't get him on that either. And, um, yeah, decades went past, and they decided uh, in 2014 to take another look at it. And by that time, he was living in um, Minden in Ontario, and I think he was running a, a small... Uh, renovation business he was married or had a partner and uh, they decided to launch a Mr Big Sting and this is pretty fascinating it's an, an RCMP thing <laughs> yeah. uh, that came up in the 90s it's um, gone through quite a few changes and things but it, it's been quite successful I'm always surprised why you think you know do criminals not listen to shows like yours and read books Yeah. And, for shows like yours, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I was watching his con- his confession as part of the public record, and yeah, yeah you'd be hard pressed to to buy what uh, what the undercover officer is selling. But in fact, they essentially convince him that if he gives up the details, they can get someone else to take the fall for it, right?
2: But they put in months and months of work as well. You know, grooming True, of them. I guess you know they sort of um, hire him to to work in what he thinks is a criminal organization and you know they make up all these um, scenarios that he thinks are illegal like carjacking or drugs or you know beating up someone or you know all sorts of sort of weird things and they get progressively more and more and they spend a a ton of money on this you know they fly them all around the country and and uh, you know take them out for fancy dinners and things like that and all the while you know they're, they're grooming the, this guy to, to become part of a, a larger criminal organisation or at least he thinks he is he's obviously not doing anything really illegal uh, but by the time you know, he gets to a certain point uh, they say look you know, we've got um, contacts in the police force, we know you're going to be charged with this murder, they've got DNA but we can help you we can get you out of this, we've got someone who's dying and um, he will do this as a deathbed confession if you give his family a bunch of money. And we'll do that for you. But you, first of all, you have to tell us everything. You have to tell us everything about the murder and how it was done. And they even took him back to Merritt and had him show them where he abducted her and, and then later where he um, buried the bones and, or buried the body where they'd found the bones. And He made a really detailed confession. It was quite chilling, wasn't it, when you sort of listen to it and and see him? Yeah.
0: And it was it was I gather that after that, at least he appears to have sort of flown under the radar after that. I mean, despite his his very violent past uh, up until this point and again, uh, convicted of one murder, they dropped the other murder charge that you referred to once mm. he'd been convicted of this one. Um, but yeah, again, though, you know, it, it does strike you as, as you look back and it's so easy with hindsight you look back at that case and think, well, how could they not have, you know, he was already a suspect in another disappearance and murder of a young girl. How could they not have pushed a little harder on this one? And it gets back to wondering whether the victims were taken seriously.
2: Yeah, uh, well, again, they didn't have a body. So huge problem there, right? So no evidence, no body. Um, And Catherine Herbert I can't remember offhand, I didn't write about her in detail, no. um, how long her body was found, but I think it was quite a gap of time as well. So they're already really behind in the investigation. And a lot of these, not particularly, you know, it's 12 year olds they obviously took that seriously as a missing person. But a lot of the cases, you know, when they're a bit older, like Lindsay Nichols, 14-year-old, they just weren't taken seriously. They were just told on no. You know, they've got a history. They're obviously a runaway, you know, sort of go away. Weeks and weeks and months go by, uh, especially when, you know, a body isn't found and nothing's been done. And then it's really, you know, too late to gather that crucial evidence that would help find what happened. Um,
0: From one case that was really about um, police techniques to another that was really about science. Uh, And this is one that I knew because I was here by the time the arrests were made, but uh, Tanya Van Kylenberg was 18, Mm -hmm. Jay Cook 20. They were a young couple who lived in Saanich, which is a suburb of Victoria. They had gone off to Seattle for the night in a van to do an errand uh, to pick up something for one of their parents. They had sort of driven over and uh, they vanished. They were, you know, they turned up both, they both turned up dead a while later, but this all happened in Washington state in 1987. What about this case, um, piqued your curiosity in terms of just I guess you would have known about it uh, beforehand because it had resurfaced several times over the years.
2: Yeah uh, just a a really fascinating case of course I got really interested when they um, got into genetic genealogy a couple of years ago uh, because it was the first case that's actually gone to trial in the world uh, based on genetic genealogy. That's right. So so That was fascinating and and of course you know they were local kids and um, just you know really nice decent kids that were just going to Seattle overnight and camping out in the van and picking up some parts for for Jay's father and and supposedly driving back the next day and and just, you know, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, But Tanya was found, her body was found about five or six days after she went missing. She'd been shot in the head execution style. Um, She'd been zip-tied. She'd been sexually assaulted and... Uh, Jay's van was found very soon afterwards uh, about 20 kilometers away in Bellingham and then another day went by and they found his body in you know a completely different area of Washington state and they ended up having sort of four crime scenes over you know four counties over over this thing and it was just a huge huge investigation and and nothing turned up and in no. this case you know they never found the um, 38 automatic that killed her but they did have they had dna from the semen that was left on her body and um, when dna did come on the scene in, in 96 uh, they thought you know great now we'll be able to catch it you know it's such a violent crime it must be you know an offender would we'll probably be able to find his um, dna in codis or, or our dna Data bank up in Canada, and nothing, no hits, and decades nothing, went no. on, and and nothing was found, and um, it, it was just such a you know a mystery uh, of how this guy you know could have done something so violent and, and not done anything before or afterwards, and they ended up um, doing uh, phenotyping, and phenotyping is a really interesting. Sort of thing that they do from the DNA, these labs in the States, and they'll use the DNA from the crime scene to build almost a computer image of the suspect, or of the murderer in this case, because they have got his DNA, and it'll tell them all sorts of things like eye colour and skin colour and facial structure and, and things like that, and apparently the images aren't that you know, terrifically accurate. But things like having the skin color and the ancestry really helps to eliminate a lot of um, suspects, which is what they were hoping to do. I think they had a couple of hundred at, at that point and you know the show the um, case had been on shows like um, Unsolved Mysteries and stuff like that. so they had hundreds of tips to to go through and um, so anyway and then a short time afterwards, um, Dr. Barbara Fa. Venter was working with the FBI on the Golden right. State Killer and she was a genetic genealogist in the States and they found his identity that he was a former cop yeah. and after decades and again he had never come up on the radar anywhere as a former yeah. cop and and they got his DNA and um so The
0: Golden State Killer, yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: which is just yeah. amazing. And so Parabon Labs had the phenotyping, so they had everything sequenced, ready to go. And um, Cece Moore, who has become quite famous now as a genetic genealogist, uh, was given the job of um, putting that through the, the DNA databanks and try to find a match and, and you know when you, you spit in a tube and you send it off to Ancestry.com or com right, yeah. me and ends up in a database, well if you opt in uh, and say yeah i 'd like to you know upload it to jedmatch, um, then law enforcement can also search it and that 's what happened um, one of this the killer of jay and Tanya 's relatives two of them actually had um, put in their DNA and opted in, and um, sissy Moore was able to get hits pretty, you know, quickly on that. But it can just be an incredibly long process. For the Golden State Killer, they had a, a thousand potential suspects from um, this familial DNA, and they had to, you know, build family trees and then use, you know, death yeah, certificates, marriage certificates and newspapers of Facebook and you know everything else to, to try to you know get eliminate you know as many as they can and, and to try to narrow it down so it's quite fascinating it's very very time consuming and uh, Uh, In the end, you know, they looked at things like age and, you know, how old would it have to be a male, obviously, and how old would they have had to be to commit these crimes decades ago? And where were they living at the time Was it close proximity? And they ended up narrowing the Golden State Killer case. They narrowed it down to, to two people and they were able to follow these suspects around, get cast off DNA from you know, a tissue or a coffee cup or a cigarette or something like that. And they were able to, to you know, identify this guy. And a similar thing happened with um, the killer of Jay and Tanya's, but yeah. she was able to identify William Talbot really quickly. And then it was yeah, a matter of... Yeah, it was just of,
0: the, two, the two relatives, right? So yeah. they, it was pretty quick, yeah. may have been justice delayed, but not justice denied for Tanya and Jay. The genetic genealogy community deserves a re- uh, recognition. Their advancements and analytics are what helped get us to this stage. That is John Van Cuylenburg, uh, brother of Tanya Van Kylenborg, one of two victims of William Talbot. Uh, they were killed in Washington State in 1987. It wasn't until very recently, though, that that case went to trial, thanks to genetic genealogy. And not until just a few weeks ago that, in fact, uh, he was the conviction was upheld in Supreme Court. Uh, there was an appeal in that case that was that was uh, that was uh, interesting. A juror apparently juror jury bias, and uh, the appeals court. Um, ruled in favor of the defense in this case, uh, but it was overturned again, or, or at least the conviction was upheld at the Supreme Court in Washington State. You spoke to a lot of people involved in this case, Eve uh, Lazarus, and for your book Cold Case BC. One of the things that was interesting I found about this one is that uh, Cece, the woman who did the genetic genealogy, had memory of the case. She'd been the same age. She'd lived in BC mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, the detectives, one of the detectives involved had been an investigator on the case and was still involved later. That it, um, it struck me. Me as having a lot of people uh, spent a lot of years looking into this one.
2: Yeah, they really did. And one of the things that really struck me, though, with this one when I talked to Cece Moore, she said, um, Well, you know, this whole thing with genetic genealogy is so identified a completely new type of killer, someone like William Talbot that um, did something, he was only 24 years old when he killed them. But someone like you know like that that does this outrageously violent crime and then never does anything again it, they're sort of dubbing it one and done, but it goes against everything we think you know we think these killers kind of you know build up with little animals or something and you know and just get you know doing an assault and just get you know more violent and violent but. It, not in these cases, they're finding these people but it's just once, one really, really violent crime and, and they're out. And if it wasn't for genetic, genetic genealogy, they'd never find them.
0: No, I, I mean, I can imagine that in this case, William Talbot would never have been found, right? There was no, no he was not on anyone's radar. He, there was no way he was going to be tracked down.
2: No, no, it's just, it's incredible what they're doing and, uh, and finding missing people. It's the same technology that identified the babes in the woods last February.
0: right. Of course, another case that you worked on uh, these uh, these two. It ended up being a boy and a girl. Is that right? Was that two boys? Uh, two boys right. We, we yeah. thought it was a boy and a girl. It was two boys. Uh, right. Ultimately, it really has changed so much. I mean, especially for. I mean, oftentimes when you talked about getting the stories out there, so people will not forget, it's amazing that science has helped jog memories to some extent. I mean, it's it's opened up a whole different chapter in some of these cases where there really weren't ever going to be answers, like the babes in the woods, like this one.
2: Yeah, no, it's great to see. And, um, you know, I'd love to see more of it happening in Canada. You know, it's kind of frustrating when you're seeing dozens and dozens of cases being solved south of the border, and we're just not taking advantage of this technology very much up here.
0: Is that uh, You mentioned it earlier that there were some issues back way back when in the day, in the 70s and so on, just with crime scene uh, preservation, the way that crime scenes were handled, there wasn't as much DNA gathered, so we don't have as much to go on. Is that, is that the case?
2: Yeah, that, that's um, you know, obviously an issue. If they haven't got DNA, they can't do this. But it's um, also a privacy concern, and uh, it just, they've really tightened up on, on the databases and what they can search. Missing people is a bit looser. Uh, they can, they've got more leeway in that. But they also don't... In, in the States, everything's you know, sort of... You can buy everything, all sorts of information mm-hmm. and, and And we're much tighter with our public records well, private records, like vital statistics and stuff like that. So um, genealogists would really have to work very closely with police departments and, and get the proper warrants and get all that sort of stuff that they don't need to do in the state.
0: Right. Although we've seen it happen. There was the, those uh, unsolved murders from Toronto back in the yep. early 80s. Yes, I think that case, I, yeah. I interviewed one of the genealogists who worked on that, and they said, of course, they have to work very closely with police. They're not allowed to talk about it at all. Nope. Uh, but they can talk about some of the work they've done. What's the reaction been like to this book, Eve? Because I know it's not the first one you've written, but once you put all these stories out into the public sphere, I know it's been doing very well. A lot of people reading it. You must have gotten some feedback.
2: Yeah, it's really uh, captured people's attention, and it really it came out of cold case Vancouver. It started a, a Facebook page where people could sort of come and talk and maybe leave tips. And in, you know, in a perfect world, sort of. Leave information that might help to solve it. And but what happened um, was I'd put out posts on the the day that someone went missing or was murdered, and people would uh, I'd connect with me. Families would come to me and, and tell me about their you know missing loved one or murdered loved one and, and stuff like that, and it just sort of mushroomed and mushroomed into um, the, the book in a sense. You know, most of the cases seem to have found me and. And then the podcast. So, I mean, there's a huge swelling out there of people that really want to see these cases solved and, and want to do whatever they can to help.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable how many of the cases have people out there who still remember them, even though some of them, as you mentioned, date all the way back to the 40s. Uh, the most recent case in the book is 1993, and yet everywhere you looked, you found people who were either diligently trying to keep these cases uh, alive, uh, not not let them go too cold, uh, and at the same time, or or families that that you know had stories to tell about how much devastation these crimes had had on their families in the short term. Eve Lazarus, it's been uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. The book is called Cold Case BC. It's available. It's a bestseller here, here in BC. It's actually hard to find, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> these days. It's been doing really well. Congratulations on that. And as you mentioned, Thanks. it's all about keeping these stories out there.
2: Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on.